Art Newspaper Weekly podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly podcast. I'm Ben Luke. You'll notice that the music at the start of this week's podcast is very different from our usual theme. This is the Pilgrim's Hymn from the 12th century Codex Calixtinus, recorded in the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in Spain. You're hearing it because today we'll be discussing the Camino de Santiago, the walk taken by countless pilgrims since the Middle Ages to the city of Santiago de Compostela in Galicia, northwestern Spain. But first, the art world has been hit hard by cybercrime. The front page story in the current print edition of the art newspaper, out this week, reveals that several major galleries have been hit by an email scam. I'm joined by Christina Ruiz, who led a team of writers investigating the story, and Adam Prideau, an insurance broker with Hallett Independent. Christina, you've led the team of writers that's done this story in the art newspaper. Tell us what has happened. So the story is about uh, cybercrime, but it's about a very specific kind of cybercrime. It's an email fraud that has apparently been occurring for, I would say, 18 months to two years. Uh, And the form that it takes is the following. Um, So criminals hack into galleries email accounts and they monitor their incoming and outgoing correspondence Uh, and at the moment in which a gallery sends out an invoice by email usually as an unencrypted pdf attached to an email a surprising number of galleries send out invoices that way we discovered Uh, then the hackers basically uh, take over the conversation they Uh, will usually, typically, send out a duplicate, fraudulent uh, invoice attached to an email which is coming from the same gallery email address that sent out the first invoice. So a client will receive that, and normally that um, fraudulent email will say, hang on, terribly sorry, we sent out the wrong bank account details. With the first invoice, please disregard those. Please make payment to the account details in a uh, second invoice, which is the fraudulent one. So collectors will then make payment to the hacker's uh, bank account. Uh, and the same uh, fraud works in the other direction when galleries themselves are making payments to artists or service providers of some kind. Um, it should also be said that uh, at this point, the hackers are controlling all the incoming and outgoing emails so that the gallery no longer has direct access to their client, although they think they do. They're sending emails to them and getting responses, but those responses are coming from hackers. So, I mean, it's terribly frightening um, fraud and has apparently been occurring for some time. Adam, do we have a sense of the scale of this fraud? I don't think we do. I think it's... Um there are no figures the only the only information we have is simply those clients who've contacted us and that's over the last 18 months and we've probably had 10 galleries and the claims or uh, incidents of loss range from a million pounds to 5000 pounds so it's a huge range in 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 amounts but i suspect there are lots of other cases that have happened that we don't know about now i imagine there are a lot of listeners listening to this and thinking, how on earth could a collector wire money to a gallery for, let's say, a million pounds, and it not be done in a way that avoids this kind of crime? It seems to expose a rather rudimentary uh, form of communication in the art world, or is that being unfair? 
I think that's being unfair. But I think once this obviously comes out, you know, things will change very quickly. The thing is, is that email is so easy to do business. It's so easy to put an invoice on an email, send it to your client. It's so much easier than putting it in an envelope and posting it. And these are just risks that these galleries face now, which have not been the same in the past. I mean, in the past, perhaps a gallery would have insured what we call stock and cash. So in other words, someone came into the gallery and paid in cash for something. Then the risk was taking the money to the bank. Well, that, of course, doesn't happen anymore. Now it is entirely um, done electronically and invoices sent electronically. And the sophistication, um, I mean, Christina mentioned about um, the uh, client getting an email saying we've changed our bank details. Actually, that's not what I heard. I mean, they just get an invoice that's so that is identical to the one they would have got. The bank account details are almost the same. The account name is very slightly different, perhaps one letter different. Why would they ever? Why would they ever ask? Right. So, so and, and in your experience, how many galleries that um, have approached you? with this problem or with losses from this type of fraud were aware of it before it happened to them? None. And do you think that's still the case now, that, that most people don't really understand that? I think most people just don't think it's going to happen to them. But I think the thing that we as insurance brokers keep telling clients is, look, galleries are being targeted, just as house builders um, people where there are transactions, invoices for substantial amounts of money. So you know, we hope that what happens is, is the galleries start paying attention because it's very hard to insure against. Actually, this is impossible to, to insure against right now. What, what do you mean by that? How can it be impossible to insure against this? Because there isn't a specific insurance policy that provides this cover. Because the gallery can take out a certain type of policy called a cyber insurance but they are not actually the people losing the money and the insurance only pays out to the person who's lost the money which of course in this email scam is the the client the collector or museum and unless they have their own cyber insurance there is no there's no cover and christina you've um spoken to some specific galleries about it can you tell us about some of those conversations Yes, so we identified nine galleries or individuals who were targeted uh, with this specific fraud. Um, Not all of them uh, lost money through it, Um, uh, but a a few of them... When you say, sorry, when you say not all of them lost money, they were able to to retrieve money or it was the... the, No. uh, Nobody retrieved money. The, right. the the only people who were targeted but in the end didn't lose money were people or galleries that uh, became aware that they were being targeted by fraudsters before any money was actually transferred. Mm. Um, so we talked to, I mean, you know, Hausenberth confirmed to us that they had been targeted, which is, you know, surprising given the scale of that gallery, it's such a large multinational uh, operation. You would expect them to have really, you know, um, exhaustive sort of security measures in place. They assure us that they have completely overhauled uh, their practices uh, following this. Um, a lot of mid-sized galleries, uh, Simon Lee, Thomas Dane, 
uh, Rosenfeld Porcini, and also Laura Bartlett, who closed her London gallery, um, I think in September, after 12 years, uh, after she was targeted by hackers. Now, she uh, says that the uh, hacking was certainly a factor in her closing her gallery. It wasn't the only factor, but it certainly came at a very bad time for her after she'd had a tough run um, with the rest of her business. Now, a lot of those galleries are UK galleries, and that really is just an indication of how early in the in this investigation we are, rather than it being particularly located to Britain. Is that is that is that your understanding, Adam? This is probably an international phenomenon. I would think so. Yes, I, I have no evidence. I don't have any clients abroad who've who've contacted me about it, but I would. I'm sure it is. Yes. With Laura Bartlett, do we have any indication about the kind of sums that were involved? No, I mean, nobody that we talked to would confirm the sums that they lost for, you know, uh, obvious reasons. Uh, Laura Bartlett said that she had negotiated a sale of five or six works to a client in the United States, and the entire transaction was finalized uh, through email. Uh, And uh, she then sent out an invoice, this was in June, to this client. Uh, The client shortly afterwards received a second invoice from her gallery email address, uh, as as I explained before, saying disregard the first invoice, please pay this account listed in this one, and the collector did that. Uh, what then happened was that Laura uh, did not receive the money, obviously, and she sort of uh, became increasingly concerned. Uh, but she'd had done a lot of business with this client before, and she, and when she emailed him, he would respond saying, "Don't worry, I'm looking into the delay." What she didn't know at the time was that those responses were coming from the hackers, not from the client. So it was only when she called him about a week later to say what's going on, did they realize what had happened and reported it to the police. Uh, And incidentally, uh, the police, they haven't really, uh, this is the action fraud team at the Metropolitan Police, they haven't really given her any information as to how their investigation is going. Uh, But one thing that is abundantly clear is that the banks have not necessarily made a mistake that they have to take responsibility for. So it's very unlikely that they will recover any money from the bank uh, because that collector voluntarily paid money to a criminal account. It wasn't like somebody went into his account and stole money. Now, in amidst all this darkness, Christina, you heard a moment of a chink of light uh, in, the, in the form of a, a benevolent collector. Yes. So this uh, US collector who had lost 100% of the sum he paid for these five or six works of art. So he then decided that he still wanted the works in his collection. So he a- agreed to pay the artist his or her fee 50% of the total price that he would have initially paid. So he did that and he therefore ended up paying 150% for the works. Uh, but Laura Bartlett got nothing. So she did not get her 50% cut. She was very grateful to that collector for paying the artist. Uh, but nevertheless, it was a not a great outcome for her. Adam, this seems to me to be a crucial factor in what we now must regard as the best practice, as good practice within dealings between collectors and gallerists. Yes, absolutely. It's taking it seriously. It's taking the whole idea of internet security seriously and removing this kind of casualness to the approach of 
sending invoices out. So it starts by you know, upgrading all software, making sure all gallery staff all change their emails regularly, improving the sort of defences of your your um, system and your operation online, and then um, encrypting or password protecting any attachments. It all sounds like an incredible bore, and God is going to slow down business. And but you know the risks are. It's less substantial of a, <laughs> on the other side. It's less of a bore than losing millions of pounds. It, it really is. And they are incredibly simple. But I think it's all about training and awareness and realising that it is happening with greater frequency. And, and the malware, ransomware and all these um, uh, viruses that are, are sent out to systems are getting much more sophisticated. Did you get a sense from the galleries that you spoke to, Christina, that this has given them a big shock and that the systems are improving? You mentioned Housing Vert earlier on. Absolutely. I mean, the, the galleries, certainly that were targeted uh, and are now aware of this, are um, completely upgrading their systems. Uh, but I, I still personally think that a lot of, particularly younger galleries, are conducting business um, with, uh, you know, just uh, bog-standard Hotmail accounts. I mean, th- that's something you mentioned to me earlier. Yeah, it is. I mean, just the very... Pre- if you're working with a laptop and you just open up your laptop and there are your emails, you are working on an unprotected network. Um, anyone can just access it. And maybe you've never changed the default password on the on the, on your um, computer. So this just means there's greater chance of access and people just hacking emails it's very very easy to do so basically you're advising there will be collectors listening to this there will be gallerists listening to this we think so you're advising everyone to just encrypt any of this kind of communication even down to the most basic level of when you sign on to your emails yes i i sensitive sensitive data should not be sent as an attachment as a standard pdf attachment on an email um if you're going to pay a very substantial amount of money um, obviously, maybe call the gallery first, check the bank details are correct, or send one pound first and just ensure that they've got that payment. So this is very simple um, process, which wouldn't be too difficult to get all the staff to adhere to. And it's certainly, as you say, much more effective to put these um, procedures in place right at the start. I mean, I know that you advise people who are just opening a gallery. Um, is is that correct? This is all. Yep. Yeah, this yeah. is almost one of the first things we say. You know, the risks facing galleries have changed, and it's not so much people breaking into their galleries. Theft claims don't. They happen quite infrequently, yeah. um, and this is not a claim, but this is nonetheless a risk that galleries face. And our job as brokers is to point out risks so they can minimise them. And and I imagine you yourselves are having to continually shift your focus because of the changing nature of the way cybercrime and and other digital uh, pitfalls are developing. To a certain extent, but this is the main, this has definitely been the main, main development. I mean, there are other cyber insurances that cover breach of data and um, damage done by hackers or uh, ransom uh, ransomware but they are this they are not perhaps as significant for the art world as this um, man in the middle scam now Christina you have also uh, been made aware that there are 
these EU general data protection regulations, which are coming in next year, which actually will have quite a big bearing on these sorts of events. Yes. So apparently this new legislation, which comes into effect in the UK in the spring, uh, and it's coming into effect despite Brexit. We've already signed up for it, so Brexit will make no difference to it. Uh, and this legislation basically requires you as a business to take much greater care in protecting any sensitive data that you hold. So, for example, if you are a gallery and your database includes um, sensitive information relating to your clients, you are legally obliged to look after it. Under pe- The penalty, I believe, is... Um, either 4% of your annual annual turnover or 20 million euros, whichever is higher. So in this specific case, I believe if somebody hacks into your gallery emails because you do not have adequate security provision uh, and is able to uh, divert payment from one of your clients to their, uh, you know, to a criminal account, then I believe, it's my understanding, the gallery will be liable under this new legislation. And I don't think many galleries are that aware that this legislation is coming into effect and uh, that they need to, you know, uh, uh, quite urgently uh, institute some, you know, much tougher security provisions. So, Adam, you said that you had had um, you had handled various claims that galleries had made um, for losses that they had had following this type of fraud. Um, is can you tell us if any of those galleries successfully recovered any money that they or their clients lost? There were no successful claims because there was no insurance in place. Right. So it's the worst thing for us to say to a client is, I'm, I'm sorry, but you don't have any insurance. Yeah. And this issue of insurance, I mean, I know that we had many conversations about this and you were very helpful, but I... Uh, Genuinely, and my colleague Anna Brady, uh, who's an art market reporter, we genuinely found it difficult to obtain accurate information from the insurers because certain people were telling us that there were insurance products that would protect you and other people were saying that there were not. And it just seemed like a, a, a really confusing area. Is is that um, just our inexperience or is it generally a confusing area? I think it is generally a confusing area. And there's lots of areas of insurance is generally confusing to most people. And our job as brokers is to make it simpler, um, talk in a sort of, you know, plain English. But I think even the insurers don't actually really understand this particular scam. So there is there are cyber insurance in place, which you can get. It does protect certain risks but we've yet to find one that addresses this particular one and there's all kinds of social engineering policies which are added on to the back of a crime insurance which is part of a cyber and data insurance it is really technical sorry can you explain a social engineering the social engineering is effectively where somebody steps in and pretends to be someone else and over a, a conversation or a period of time you know, there is no difference between the hacker and uh, the the person who's originally sending the email. That's called that's the social engineering part. And there was one other thing that I would just like to mention, which is that um, the art world is not being specifically targeted by hackers. Hackers are basically attacking every known business that has an online presence. Uh, but there are certain factors about the art world which make it, I think, a particularly lucrative target. Uh, and that is that, uh, as as discussed, you can, you know, with a single 
uh, email, if you're, you're dealing with a client that you've dealt with for years, you could agree to spend and vast sums of money and transfer those virtually instantly. So um, I think that may, that is quite unique because I think in many other businesses, there would be much greater checks um, and, you know, uh, discussion and procedures uh, than, than there are in the art world. One imagines that this would, this would be much more difficult when it comes to property, for instance. Well, I think actually property has been targeted uh, by hackers and, and people often say that actually property is very vulnerable. I mean, any um, any industry, I think where there is that gap between the payment and the completion, that was that was certainly mentioned to me as a as a sort of vulnerable area. But I certainly think it's true. I mean, one of the dealers I spoke to who asked not to be named said, you know, you cannot spend a million dollars on a condominium without three weeks of checks and balances. Whereas after a single phone call, you your client can wire you a million dollars. Or a single email in this yes. case, which is probably the more important. And also, the you don't discover the, the crime often until you realise 30 days later, whatever your payment terms are, that you haven't got the money. Because yes. galleries are very used to being paid late by collectors. So there's a there's a lag and that lag is gives the time for the the criminal the hacker to have closed down the bank account got the money out and you know leave the no chance of any kind of recovery it's a story which i think will rumble on and on christina adam thank you very much now to the camino de santiago Anna Summers-Cox, the founder of the art newspaper, made the journey across northern Spain earlier this year. She noticed issues relating to the conservation and restoration of historic buildings she saw along the way. Anna is here with me now. So, Anna, why did you make this journey? I think I felt a bit like um, the Starlings when they suddenly all gathered together and set off for Africa. I did, I'm not quite sure why I felt I needed to do it, but I felt it very, very strongly. And I'm completely unfit and completely <laughs> not ready for it. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life, if not the greatest experience. And and I know that there are several routes that one can take along the Camino or so, several points at which you can begin it. What did you choose? I chose to do what's called the Camino Frances, where, where you start um, at the Pyrenees. I started at Ronceval and walked the 750 kilometres through north and north central Spain to get to Santiago. Now, delightful as it is to talk about that experience, you're actually here to talk about an, a problem that you've identified along that journey in terms of the conservation and restoration of historic buildings. Well, yes, because it, uh, as a former head of the Venice and Peril Fund and former museum curator, I was absolutely appalled to see that um, their best practice of conservation as opposed to restoration. Conservation being that you try to keep as much as possible of whatever it is you're, you're looking after. Restoration is where you just try and make it all look new again. That this principle of conservation doesn't seem to have actually caught on yet in Spain. Now, one of the key things to point out is that this is not a new phenomenon. This, this, this dates back several decades, if not further. General Franco, 
um, like most fascists, had a very strong sense of the history that he thought Spain embodied, and he wanted its major monuments um, to look um, new, basically, <laughs> uh, in very good shape. So there were schools of restorers who went round, and I got to recognise where they had been working. There's a particular rounded edge of a of granite that one found in many, many churches, very, very sort of raw looking when one knew that this that the, the Franco's, uh, Franco conservators had been at it and um, there was a perfect example of it a rather extraordinary example and the first part of first day of my uh, pilgrimage at Roncesvalles where there is the medieval church where the pilgrims said the um, first mass and um, I, was, I was looking at modern medieval glass and I asked the priest where it had come from and he said yeah, yes so it got shipped over to us in 1944 from Germany, where they'd made it for Franco. So the Ailing Reich was still able to produce, to produce artisans who were producing stained glass windows to be shipped over to Hitler's mate Franco in Spain. Exactly. <laughs> How extraordinary. So, so as well as this, there has been a pattern of poor restoration as opposed to conservation right the way through that part of Spain. We should say it's a journey that takes you ultimately to Santiago de Compostela in Galicia, and Franco of course was Galician. Um, so right the way along the journey you identified aspects of this. I, I thought there was an excess of zeal um, on the part of local mayors because knowing that the um, the, the pilgrims would be coming through, they were trying to make their towns look as nice as possible, which was on the whole disastrous because they um, instead of just leaving things alone uh, they would embellish the square. So one particular little town I remember from Easter has exquisite Romanesque church in a golden sandstone. And the mayor has decided that the best thing to do is to cover the whole square around it in hard white travertine stone, which comes right up against the edge of the church. And then within that, that um, vast, shiny white expanse there, these kind of modernist flower beds. That was a really screamingly bad example. And this is because there are inadequate controls on who does what. Um, there is no sort of, um, if there's a listing process, it doesn't seem to actually affect what gets done to the buildings. But but also a sort of failure to understand that a building exists in, in a context as opposed to just as a, almost like an object. Yes, yes very much so. Um, there's a square in Leon which was stood exquisite and had pebbly, pebbly surface and that was, was about to be abolished because people said health and safety uh, was going to be, um, this wasn't good for health and safety. Terrible health and safety regulations which are the excuse for doing dreadful things uh, in many countries. Now, it wasn't just the fabric of the buildings that you identified as being problematic. There were actually things within them that were being treated in a way that caused a bit of alarm. I think it was partly because the local churches, as you're going on on this route, 250,000 pilgrims a year pouring down, they decided, oh, well, what can we give them? What can we show them? So they get out their vestments. And again and again, I see wonderful 18th century vestments hanging um, in front, full light from windows. And things that have been kept in the dark for centuries can be wrecked in just a very few years, in 10 years. You can All the colour can go out of a red vestment if it's hung in the light. In a sense, what you're identifying is a quite a generous phenomenon that people have these wonderful things and they want to show them to people. So the, in a way, the intention is good, but it's, a, it's about knowing how to use these, knowing how to manage these materials, essentially. Yes, and I mean, San Isidoro, uh, a 12th century monastery in Leon, has um, caskets 
lined with Middle Eastern silks from the 11th century that are as fresh as the day they were woven. But in 10 years' time, these will have gone. And I said to the man, if you keep having them with the casket lid open and the light on all day, you will wreck them in 10 years. Something that's survived a 1,000 years will be written off in, in just 10 years. And he said, oh, um, we're waiting for special funding from York. And I said, well, can't we install at least those sensors that they have in toilets that plunge you in darkness if you, if you don't move, you know, so if, they, if there's nobody in the room, the lights go out. Um, he just looked at me. Um, then um, another phenomenon was... Um, the repainting of stone sculpture. Now, I don't know how many people know, but medieval sculpture on cathedrals didn't used to be um, grey or white. It was they were brightly coloured. Well, you see that in Spain. You see that in Pamplona Cathedral and in Burgos Cathedral. In fact, sometimes some of the more elaborate doorways look a bit like a toy shop. Everything is so brightly coloured. Um, but you notice that the paint layers are, you know, sometimes a quarter of an inch thick. They just slap on another layer of paint. Um, and this again is not in the spirit of conservation. God knows what's happening underneath, or maybe it's conserving what's happening underneath, but it's certainly not um, what the stuff look, really looked like. Um, is, is there an example of good practice that you saw while you were on the journey? Well, I had to wait until I got to Santiago itself to see it. In Santiago, there is one of the great masterpieces of Western art, and it's called the Portico of Glory. And it's 12th century, a great mass of wonderful sculptures, Christ in glory, the apostles, the prophets, um, the, the New Testament, the Old Testament. And uh, this has been under restoration since 2009 with a great deal of money from something called the Barrier Foundation. And there they've examined everything in enormous detail and they've, uh, they've, they've, they, they're going to be starting the cleaning now. And they're finding the original 12th century paint underneath it and then that will be very very carefully looked after so from that you will really have a sense of what a great painted doorway of um, the Romanesque period looked like. From what you're saying it sounds like the problem is really quite widespread so what hope is there that there could be a shift in attitude a shift in practice towards the kind that you've just mentioned in Santiago? I think, first of all, you've got to raise consciousness of it. Secondly, it means that uh, responsibility can no, no longer be devolved right down to the local level. There must be rules and regulations for important monuments. And um, I think that precedes the need for money, because there's no doubt about it that to conserve something properly costs a lot of money. But if you can't conserve something proper, properly, it's sometimes it's better just to leave it alone. Anna, thank you very much. That's all for this episode. You can read the full story about cybercrime in the art world in the Art Newspaper's print edition, out now. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, and please do post a rating or review if you have a moment. You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at the Art Newspaper. Next week we'll be podcasting from Abu Dhabi where you'll hear all about the Abu Dhabi Art Fair and of course the grand opening of the Louvre Abu Dhabi. Thanks for listening.